I want to elaborate a little bit just on something that I shared at the, the prayer meeting on, on Tuesday night. Um, I've been reading Deuteronomy this week in my own reading plan, and just a, a verse in, in chapter 1 jumped out at me, and I've been chewing on it, I guess, uh, since Tuesday, and thinking through it, and looking at the chapter over and over again. It's in, in one way, it's encouraging, and in another way, it's a, it's a dire warning to, to God's people about complacency. Let me, let me read uh, the first few verses just as a basis. It says in verse 1, These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. So they're still in the, in the, in the wilderness. They're not yet in the promised land, but they're close to it. That is the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. That's good. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. 11 days. Now Horeb, it says in, in, if it says in your Bible there, Horeb in verse 2, that means Mount Sinai. That's where God gave them the law. And it takes 11 days to make the journey from there to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is right on the border of the promised land. That's where the spies were sent in from, if you know the story of Joshua and Caleb. So that's an 11-day journey. How long is the journey? 11 days. Verse 3, in the 40th year, (laughs) on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Go to verse 6. The Lord your God said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river of the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Eleven-day journey from Mount Sinai to the border of the Promised Land. And yet you read in verse 3, 40 years. It took them 40 years to actually get to the place where God wanted them to be, to bring them into the promised land. Do you ever get frustrated with people that take a long, long time to learn something that they should get quite quickly? Eh? Have you ever taught teenagers? I have, I have loads of time for teenagers who struggle and find things difficult and work hard at it. I have loads of time for kids like that in school. But see, the smart kids who don't want to do anything, they break my heart. You know, they're a different kettle of fish altogether. They just don't want to learn and they don't want to make progress. They're just a bit lazy and a bit complacent. I like people who learn simple lessons reasonably quickly and don't need to hear them again and again and again. But God's people have this problem. Frequently, it takes us way, way too long to learn the basics. The writer to the Hebrews challenges them, I think, in chapter 5, and he says, by now you should be moving on to the meat and to the solid food, but you're still drinking milk. You're still getting on like infants. God's people took 40 years to make an 11-day journey. 
Now, if you do a little bit of maths on that, that basically means each day's progress actually took them over three and a half years. In terms of how long it should take to get to that place. They were told in verse 6, God said to them, you've stayed long enough at Sinai, at Horeb, you need to break camp and you need to advance Go up to this hill country where you'll find some nasty folks called the Amorites and you're going to have to deal with them and then move into the promised land. And let me just remind you what the promised land actually was for. Because sometimes we we think the land itself is, is the end goal and it's not. In Genesis chapter 12, God made promises to Abraham. He said to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you many descendants. And I'm going to give them a land. And that was not the end of the story. It's not that you're just going to go and live in this land and, and have, a, have a nice time and relax and everything's going to be grand. He says, you're, you're going to have a land. You're going to be my people. And through you, the whole earth will be blessed. Now, keep, you've got to hold that in your mind. That is God's end goal in calling a people Israel and in calling the church, the continuation, I believe, of God's people Israel. His intention is that the whole world will be blessed through a people who actually live the way he wants them to live. That's what God's plan is. This is about blessing. It's about redemption. It's about salvation. That's why God wanted to bring them into the land. And whenever they get to this place called Kadesh Barnea, this 11-day journey, start again at verse 19 to see what happened there. It says, The Lord our God commanded us, and we set out from Horeb. We went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you've reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given us. See, the Lord your God has given us the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord your fathers told you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route that we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me. And I selected 12 of you, one from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came into the valley of Eshkol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. So whenever they complete their 11-day journey, moving from Mount Sinai to the border of the promised land, where God wants his people to be so that through them he can bless the whole world. That's the purpose of the people of God. The purpose of the church is to be a blessing to the world. If we are not a blessing to the community around us, we are not the church. We are something else. The purpose is to bless people. And and whenever they got to the border of the promised land, they said, let's send in some spies to check it out and to come back and tell us what it's like. And God allowed them to do that. Moses allowed them to do that. But that in itself was an act of unbelief. Because God had already told them, take the land. And they were showing a lack of trust in God by saying, let's just sit here for a while and send some guys in to find out what it's really like. But God granted that. He permitted it. He let them do that. And the spies came back and brought their report. And that's a different story in round about Numbers 13 and 14. But I want you to look at verse 26. These people are standing right on the border of this land. 
When you think about the church and think about the God's people moving with his call and, and moving to a place where he wants them to be so that he can bless the world and the surrounding communities. And they're standing on the, on the very cusp of history. God has given Abraham his descendants and the next stage is to bring them into a land. And it says in verse 26, Moses is speaking. He says, you were unwilling to go up. You got right to the border. You could see it. You could reach out and touch it almost. You even saw some of the fruit that was brought back from it. But you were unwilling to go forward in the plan of God. This, this generation of people who had come out of Egypt and made the 11-day journey to Kadesh Barnea, they had seen the plagues. They had, imagine seeing the plagues. They had seen them. We've seen them in movies. <laughs> We've imagined what they might have looked like. These guys saw the plagues. Only a few weeks earlier, they saw them. They saw the Red Sea crossing. Imagine that. They saw the pillar of cloud and fire and they saw the manna on the ground each morning and the water come from the rock and they saw the fire on the mountain. But they were unwilling to trust God and go up and take the land, even after all that they had seen. And I'm sure Moses was choking back tears as he spoke in chapter 2, verse 1. They're on the border of the promised land. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Red Sea was long behind them. The Red Sea they had crossed on their way out of Egypt. It was 11 days, more than 11 days journey behind them. And they're standing on the border of the promised land. And Moses is recounting what happened. And he's recollecting it and, and going through it. And he, and he says, we were right there. And we turned around. And headed back towards the Red Sea. Just devastating. So close. And yet they were unwilling to go up. And they went into the wilderness for 40 years. And went right in a small patch of ground. Relatively small patch of ground. Maybe 100 miles wide. And they went round and round in circles for 40 years. Why are God's people so slow at making progress. We are the ultimate procrastinators, to use a big word. We are the ultimate faffers. When God wants us to move forward and he brings us to a place and we've got promises and we've got vision and we've got, we've got passion and then all of a sudden it's like, I don't know if I want to make this next step. It's a big step. People in there are big and the walls of the cities are high and I don't know if I want to go. Why does it take us so long to move forward in the things of God? Why don't we number our days a little bit more cautiously and have a little bit more urgency about life? One of the, one of the things about just the culture that we're currently living in that worships youth and worships beauty and worships young celebrities is that, that we don't number our days. We don't think about what life might be like in 5, 10, 20 years' time. We, we're surrounded by just youthfulness all the time. And we think we're going to be young and energetic and fresh and full of passion and zeal all the time. And we never think beyond the instant, never think beyond the moment. You know, there are some lessons that we should, as Christians, learn in 11 days, but it takes decades for some of us to learn them. 
simple lessons of faith and you wonder why it takes so long. Here's, here's two for you. Two little 11-day lessons that some Christians, for some reason, take decades to get. Here's the first one. This is real simple stuff. Like, here's the first one. This is, a, this is an 11-day lesson. I want to save you wasting decades of your life. So just get this. The only thing that will transform you is the Word of God. And the only thing that will transform me. In 2,000 years, that has been the only thing that has transformed the people of God. The only thing that renews our mind, changes how we think, lets us know what God is like, is the Word of God. This is the only way He does it. There is no other way. And don't be thinking that you might discover some other way that nobody else has for the past two millennia. This is how God transforms us and changes us. And if we don't engage with it, we will not be changed. Does anybody want transformed? Does anybody lack... I'm getting applause here. It must be good. (laughs) Does anybody lack hope? Does anybody lack the sort of character that they want to have? Does anybody have things in their lives that just bug them and you just think, why do I keep thinking like that? Why do I keep moving into that cycle of thought and of behavior and you're, you're tormented and you're annoyed and you're sick of it? This is the only thing that will change you. Nothing else will change you. This is God's means. It's when we engage with this that it transforms us. Are you seriously engaging with God's word? Are you going to waste decades maybe of your life before you actually really get serious about it? It's a simple 11-day lesson that we should learn right at the start of the journey rather than faffing about for years and wasting our time flirting with God and flirting with His church and never really rigorously engaging with His Word. Second 11-day lesson that some people take decades to learn, some people maybe never learn. God brings His kingdom when His people pray. There is no other way. His kingdom comes As we pray. And if we do not pray, we will not see his kingdom come. Now, will you learn that in 11 days or will you take 40 years to learn that? Do you want to see God's kingdom come in your life, in your home, your family, and in your town, your community? Do you want to see God's kingdom come? It only comes as you pray. You can sing your lungs out. Love singing. We love praising God together. His kingdom comes as we pray. His kingdom doesn't even come as we preach. It comes as we pray. It comes as we pray. Do you value prayer? Prayer is hard work. <laughs> prayer is, is, a, is, is a place where you can very easily get very distracted by many, many things. It takes a lot of discipline to cultivate a prayer life. But if you want to see God's kingdom come... That's how it comes, through prayer. And I think as a, as a community and as a body, we need to raise our game. We need to raise our game in corporate prayer. If Tuesday night doesn't suit, you arrange another prayer meeting on another night, we're not going to stop you, okay? We need to raise our game in prayer if we want to see the kingdom come. And as individuals, we also need to raise our game in prayer. These are two simple lessons, but for some reason, some of us go for years and years and years and years and years before we really lay hold of these things that God has given us. 
And then in this scene in Deuteronomy, we are on the border again. Moses had been to the border with a generation of people. This is important to understand everything that's going on in Deuteronomy. He had been at the border with a generation of people who would not go up and take the land. They turned around and they went back again for 40 years into the wilderness. And now, at the start of Deuteronomy, they're on the border again. Okay, 40 years later, they're back at the same place where they had been, where 40 years earlier they had said, we're not going. And Moses has gone around in the promised land with these people for 40 years. He's on the border. Joshua's with them and Caleb is with them and nobody else is there. This second time, nobody else is there who was there the first time. They're all dead. That's why God let them wander for 40 years in the wilderness because it took that long for them to all die and get out of the road. He had to get rid of that generation in order to raise up a new generation of faith. Those people who stood 40 years previously on the border and said, we're not going up there. They're all now scattered in unmarked graves across the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. Forgotten about. Nobody, nowhere knows any of them. (laughs) Don't know their names. Don't know where their bodies and their bones are. They died in obscurity. Because they would not take the land. And now 40 years later, Moses is back on the border. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses on the border just before he dies, going through everything a second time. Deuteronomy literally means second law. He goes, if you ever read your Bible uh, just sort of in order and you've wondered why is all of this coming again in Deuteronomy? We've read so much of this before. In Exodus and in other places, why are we seeing it again? It's because Moses had a generation of people who hadn't seen it. The, the ones he, at the start of the book of Deuteronomy, the ones he is standing on the border with, they were not in Egypt. They were born in the wilderness. Everyone that was in Egypt has died except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And he's going through everything again because he doesn't want to see the cycle repeat itself. He does not want this generation to drop the ball the way the last generation did. He doesn't. He wants them to to learn the lessons of the previous generation and to make sure that they actually go and take the land. So he goes through everything with them again because they need to know the character of God. They need to know his law and they need to be challenged. Will you succeed where the previous generation failed? Will the current generation who are standing on the cusp of a move of God, will they succeed where their fathers failed? Or will they do the same thing? Will they turn and will they go back and wander around in circles for another generation? God's time scale is very different from ours. It took about 430 years for God to get from the promise to Abraham to the border at the promised land until he had everything ready. And they missed it. And he brought them back into the wilderness and he took another 40 years to bring the opportunity around again. We have this little notion that the world revolves around me And if I miss it, that somehow I'll get to do it again. 
And the world doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around the plans and the purposes of God. And if we miss it, he might just walk us back into the wilderness and walk us around in circles for decades until we all get out of the way. It's a very serious moment as, as Moses stands at the start of this book of Deuteronomy. You might, he's four decades of frustration behind him with these people. Four decades of listening to them, putting up with them. Imagine what it was like waiting for the last one to die. <laughs> you know, there's, there's one guy left of that generation that were in Egypt. Call him Frank. Okay, Frank is the only one left. All the other people that are with Moses have been born in the wilderness. There's only one guy left of that previous generation. And imagine Moses sees him each day as they wander around the camp. You know, hi Frank. Hi Moses. How are you today, Frank? I'm feeling good, thanks. Darn. <laughs> no pains, no sicknesses, no. No, no, I'm feeling grand. All right. Just waiting for Frank to die so that this generation can completely pass away and that God can move forward with a new generation. Remember the ultimate purpose. It's not so that generation can live in comfort. It's not so they can just go into the land, build nice houses and sit under trees and and just be happy. It's so that God can bless the world through them. Why did they not enter the land 40 years previously? There are three things, at least, that I saw in, in Deuteronomy 1. Reasons why this previous generation didn't make it. And the first one is actually staggering. It really is. Because you, you know, think to yourself, what, what might you think of if, um, if I say to you that th- this generation were on the edge of moving into God's promised land and being the people that he wanted and they didn't make it and ended up wandering for 40 years until they were all dead. And you, and you might think to yourself, well, they must have done something incredibly bad. They must have been engaging in idolatry. Huge, massive epidemic of idolatry surely and and God couldn't use them no that wasn't the case or you maybe think immorality there must have been immorality among the people they were they were doing all sorts of things that they shouldn't have been doing and God said no you're not going in no but there's it's immorality is not the the issue that's mentioned here in verse 27 we do see the first reason that Moses gives for why the people did not enter the promised land verse 27 you grumbled. And you just think, God, that's so petty. You kept them out because they grumbled? Yes, you grumbled. You grumbled. Some translations say murmur. You murmured or complain. Prior to reading Deuteronomy in, in, in my own readings, I read numbers, as you would expect. And as I went through numbers, I just underlined a different color of pen and I underlined every time that people complained and it's unbelievable. <laughs> you feel sorry for Moses. Continual grumbling. They're on, you get the magnitude of it. I don't know, they're, they're, it's estimated that there was maybe at least probably about a million people on the border of the promised land, about to move forward. Boom, we've come through the Red Sea. We've seen the plagues and we're going to go into the promised land. And the thing that keeps them out is that there were a bunch of moaners. Grumbled and complained. They grumbled in their tents. Grumbled in their homes. They met and had coffee together and grumbled more. 
They grumbled about the food and they grumbled about the water. They grumbled about the leadership and they grumbled about God. Wow. Imagine that something so seemingly small is actually huge in the eyes of God. Huge enough for him to say, no, not you. You're not going to go into this land. Not with that in your heart. Grumblers and complainers will not take the land. What grumbling does is it creates a toxic, negative environment. Complainers share their complaints with other people instead of actually resolving them. Paul took it seriously in in Philippians chapter 2. You know, the more you read the Old Testament, you know where you realize that the the people of God in the Old Testament are, are always being pulled out as examples in the New Testament. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. And you think that's a nice little sort of daddy verse, you know, stop moaning at each other, stop grumbling, stop gurning. But for Paul, that's deadly serious because Paul knows that in his time, the people of God are again at a huge point in history. And when he says, do not complain, he's going back here and he's referring to this and saying, if you complain, you're going to be like this lot. And you'll go into obscurity and you'll die and be buried in unmarked graves. And you'll not achieve or advance the purposes of God. The church, unfortunately, has its fair share of grumblers, complainers, moaners. Do we actually understand how serious it is? Don't ever forget that the number one reason that God's people did not step into the promised land is that they were grumblers. It's not because they were unqualified. It's not because they didn't have a good strategy or not because they didn't have gifts or skills or equipping or whatever. It was because they were grumblers. And God still gives visions and promises to his people and he still puts, metaphorically, he puts land in front of us and says, that's the land that I want to bring you into in order to make you a blessing to the world. And maybe God then takes his church and says, right, I'm going to walk you around in circles for as long as it takes for the grumblers to go away. (laughs) And that's putting it nicely. (laughs) Because for the grumblers to go away in the wilderness meant lights out. I think we need to have a zero tolerance attitude to grumbling. Once, once all the grumbling is gone, then God can say to the faithful, let's take the land. Let's move forward. That generation is gone. At the start of every discipleship group, when we, when we meet, uh, we, we have a little covenant that we read out. And one of, the, one of the things that we read to each other is that we will have a zero tolerance attitude to gossip and criticism. It's a place where we share our hearts and we unburden ourselves to each other and we answer some some really pointed questions, but we will not allow it to descend into gossip or criticism. Once the poison of grumbling creeps in, we're at a dangerous place and there's a very real risk that God will allow us to just waste our lives. It's great getting older, like... You value every moment. It's great having little aches and pains now and again because you realize you're not invincible. 
It's great when it gets harder to get up in the morning because you just want to sleep more. And it's just like God continually prodding you. You've only one shot at this life. If you want, you can go and you can do laps of the wilderness with the church and you can waste your life and faff it away into obscurity and be buried in an unmarked grave. Or you can take the land. This is serious. Second thing that held them away from moving into the land was also in verse 27. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. You imagine the people of God saying that. After all they had seen. One of the things that grumbling does is it causes you to have a warped view of God. A twisted understanding of who God actually is. Moses saw the character of God back in Exodus 33, 34. Moses saw the Lord reveal himself as the one who was the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But those who grumble, what happens is as you grumble, there's another process taking place subconsciously at the same time. As you grumble and as you complain, your view of God starts to get twisted. Starts to get obscured and blurry and wrong. And because if I grumble, my view of God gets twisted. If I'm a grumbling, complaining, moany old so-and-so, my view of God starts to get twisted. And then what people see of God in me is twisted as well. God is a living, true, faithful, just, unchanging, loving Father. But those who complain all the time won't see that. Those who have a thankful attitude of heart, grateful people who love to praise Him and thank Him for His goodness, they'll have a right view of God. But those who complain will see Him as harsh. And they'll say things that are unbelievable, like, the Lord hates us. These people did not know the character of God. and That kept them out of the promised land. They didn't know Him. And the third thing that kept them out of the land, they didn't know Him. And also in verse 32, you did not trust Him. She's a simple sort of sequence here. As you are a complainer, you get a warped view of God and you don't really know Him. And then because you don't really know Him, you don't trust Him. Because you can't trust someone you don't know. Those of us that have young children will not bring around a babysitter who we don't know. Because we don't know if we can trust them. So we'll ask somebody that we know. We want to know their character and know what they're like and whether or not we can trust our children to them. And this people did not know God and therefore they didn't trust God. And they start to think to themselves, maybe we, maybe we can't do this. Maybe God didn't call us to do this. Maybe actually this was all just a bit, of a bit of a wild goose chase, this whole promised land thing, this whole call of God, this whole plant a church and influence a community and bring hope and life. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it was all, maybe we just got a bit excited in the moment. Maybe we got carried away. See, we've grumbled ourselves into this mindset. We no longer really trust what God has called us to. Maybe we should have stayed where we were. Maybe if we'd all stayed where we were, we'd have been happier. Maybe Moses is a bad leader. 
Maybe we should make our own gods. Maybe God will abandon us if we go into the promised land. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All this fear and unbelief. And the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 calls it what it is. He goes back again, uses this period in history as an example. And he says at the end of Hebrews 3 that the people were not able to enter because of their unbelief. They didn't trust God. And therefore they didn't enter the promised land. And the unbelief stemmed from a grumbling, complaining heart. Beware grumbling. I think it's one of the devil's most insidious, subversive ways of getting into your heart and short-circuiting what God is doing. Just start to complain about a few things. Don't like this, I don't like that. And then all of a sudden, your view of God changes. And all of a sudden, your heart is filled with unbelief instead of faith. And verse 26 in Deuteronomy 1, it says, and this was the verse or the phrase that really caught me during the week. It says, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. I think some of us sometimes view the Christian life as, as, um, as long as we're on board the ship, as long as, we're, as long as we start the journey, it doesn't really matter where we stop. As long as we start the race, we can sort of step out of it again at some stage or we can slow it away, way down. We can play it safe. We don't have to push right into what we feel God's calling us to. And we play it safe. We maybe think to ourselves, well, we've, we've done well. We heard the call of God. We got excited. We did a bit. Um, we, we've done reasonably well. Look how far we've come. This will do. This will do. We've done, we've done well. And we'll, we'll stop and we'll just content ourselves here on the border of the promised land without actually going in. And Moses says, that's rebellion. That's not partial obedience. That's not 90%. That is rebellion. When God has called you into the land, even if you stand on the border of it and you eat some grapes that came out of it and you don't go in, that's rebellion. Actually, literally, that, that verse in Hebrew says, you rebelled against the mouth of God. The words that he spoke, you rebelled against them. Imagine being part of that generation that just walked around in circles for 40 years waiting for everybody to die. And it could happen again. And probably has happened over and over again in the history of the church where God raises up a people. They don't guard their hearts against unbelief and gurning. And then once again, he's like, right, okay, turn back. Head to the Red Sea. Walk around in circles until that heart passes away and a new heart comes that I can work with. What is required of those who will take the land? In Deuteronomy 6, and I'm nearly done. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Verse 5. I'll read them both. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Do you want to be a people that takes the land? Love God with everything you've got. Everything. Completely. Without holding back. 
without being worried about what others might say, when you get really serious about your faith, love him completely. Moses, again, think of where he is. He's standing and he's given the speech of his life to these people so that they don't repeat the failure of the previous generation. He says, listen, folks, love him with everything in you if you want to take the land. In the same verse, not only love God, but he says in in verse 6 or in the same passage, these commandments that I give you today are beyond your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. If you want to be the people that take the land, you love God with everything that is in you. Anything less is not enough. And you also treasure his word. Mentioned it already. You treasure, the people that take the land treasure the word. Teach it to their children. Write it metaphorically over their homes. Basically our whole life and our home is governed by the word of God. Last thing you see when you lie down at night. First thing you see when you, look up at, when you wake up in the morning. The word of God. If we are to be a people who will actually move beyond the border. And go into the land And be the people of God through whom he can bless the community. We must be people of the word. Devouring it. Reading it. Meditating on it. Chewing on it. Reading books about it. Listening to good teaching about it. Getting the word in here. So that it changes us. I still get challenged on a shockingly regular basis as I read this book. Nearly 20 years of reading it regularly and I, and I don't go for long periods of time without being slapped. <laughs> and just boom, attitude has to change. We, we, heart, we mindset has crept in, needs to be addressed. Something you're getting loose and slack about, tighten up on. Constantly being challenged by the word. We won't take the land if we're not people of the word. We won't. And the third thing is to be people of faith. I mentioned Hebrews 3 earlier. I'll not go to it. But in Hebrews, the writer holds out two groups of people as examples. In Hebrews 3, the bad example, he talks about these people who did not enter the land because of unbelief. Don't follow their example. But in Hebrews 11, he holds out another group of people who did things by faith. Unlike the generation that died in the wilderness, They believed and they trusted God. And even though they didn't see it, even though they didn't see the fulfillment of the promise, they still did their bit. They still fulfilled their part of the commission. And actually says at the end of Hebrews 11 that they need us to complete it. This is a huge project. This is not some little small thing for one person. This is a huge project that God has engaged in in history of redemption. The end of Hebrews 11, these people of faith actually says the world was not worthy of them. Like, what, what sort of legacy do you want to have? Do you want to be buried in an unmarked grave in the wilderness? Or do you want people to say the world was not worthy of him? The world was not worthy of her. You want to be a person who, who at the end of your life, people talk about you and and say nice things, but the reality is you spent most of your life walking around in circles. 
because you're grumbling. And that's what happens to grumblers. You know, if we love God with everything we've got, Deuteronomy 6, and if we treasure his word, and if we are people of faith, nothing will stop us from fulfilling God's plan for us. But the minute we start to moan, the minute we start to complain, we are on a very, very dangerous place. Do you want to take the land or not? Moses saw it. Moses didn't go into it, but he saw it. God allowed him to see the whole thing before he died. Joshua and Caleb went in because they were people of a different spirit. All the rest, God just waited for them to get out of the road. And maybe God takes his church, he takes his people, and he just says, right, let's just take our time. Let's just do a few laps. There's a few issues need dealt with. As you're doing the laps, I'll deal with the issues. And when the issues are gone, then we'll take the land. Yeah? Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that we would take it deep into our hearts this morning. The shocking reality that a massive people group who saw your power in a way that was completely unlike anything before or after, who were called to step into the land and to be a blessing to the world, and they failed to do it because they were moaners. God, I pray that you would challenge my heart and all our hearts, that we would root out anything that would hinder us from moving forward in your calling. We want to be the people through whom your blessing flows to the world, Lord. We don't want to just take the land and sit and look at it and think, isn't this lovely? We want to be a channel of blessing. We want life and hope and the gospel of King Jesus to go through us to the broken and to the lost of this community and beyond. Lord, I don't want to waste time, Father. I don't want to walk laps of the wilderness. God, will you send your spirit deep, deep into our hearts this morning and convict us so that as a people we can move on 